0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So it's Father's Day, and I've been thinking about the... uh, I've been a dad for 20 years, and I was remembering back to the days that I was told by my wife or became evident that that I was going to be a dad. And I can remember it kind of speculating and wondering, like, is she pregnant? Isn't she pregnant? And then there's the test, right? And she emerges from the bathroom, and there's little two blue lines or one blue line. And it's just super exciting, like, oh, I'm going to be a dad. And the test confirms what we kind of had a hunch. The test kind of points to the biological truth that was taking place in my, in my, in my wife. I'm not getting choked up over fatherhood. I'm just getting choked up because my, my throat is dry. I <laughs> love my kids and all, but... Um, and so I was thinking about this thing of test. A test is something that reveals the truth. That's what it's intended to do. It's an assessment to see kind of where things really are. I was reminded of this video that my son showed me this week. It was so interesting. It was like the social experiment. Maybe you've seen this. They took five people from five different walks of life, and they all put them in a room together. And these were people from different, you know, different genders, and ethnicities, and different educational backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, just a really unique diversity of folks, five of them in this room, and they were discussing the issue of intelligence. Some of them were high school graduates who went straight to the military. There were some with bachelor's degrees, some with master's degrees. There was actually a person in there who had a PhD and was like a scientist who worked on the COVID vaccine. And they were just kind of pontificating about what they thought intelligence was, and it was super interesting to hear how everybody answered the question. And as they kind of started getting down to the nuts and bolts of it, um, the the social experiment people said, okay, why don't you go ahead and rate yourself on where you think you are on the intelligence scale? Who's the most intelligent to who's the least intelligent? And of course, the the, the person with the PhD was put in first or second place. She put herself at first, but everyone else put her at first or second. And the kid that went right from high school to the military, everybody put him dead last in in intelligence. And then in a twist event, the social experiment had them all take an IQ test on the spot. And they all had to take this IQ test, and then it was just so hilarious to watch the results of the IQ test be read, because the woman with the PhD who thought she was the smartest actually had the lowest IQ test in in the group. And the military guy was second from the top and it was just really interesting to watch this play out and what was interesting was what this iq test it, it took what was nuanced it took what was perception it took what was unclear and it, there was some empirical data there to say exactly where people stood and it spoke to the way that you and i as human beings in other arenas we can kind of sometimes deceive ourselves we can maybe think that we're in one spot when we're not we can perceive things in one way when that might not actually be the truth what if there was a test to measure our spiritual IQ? What if there was a test that that could measure our, our spiritual health, our spiritual vitality? In fact, if you look closely at our text today, that's exactly what John is doing in these few verses that we read. He's giving us a test. He wants to help his audience, both the original audience, them then, but also us today. He wants to help us kind of assess Determine where our spiritual standing is, and he sort of takes a pass-fail approach. The original context, as we went over last week, was there was uh, some house churches that John, he calls himself John the Elder, in the next two letters... But we believe him to be John the Apostle, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, also wrote Revelation, the one whom Jesus loved. John the Apostle, we believe, writes this letter, and he writes to a series of house churches where there was a, a heresy, a false teaching that had invaded the church. And Many people think this is the beginnings of Gnosticism, which became a horrible heresy in the second century. And, and so John's writing to address this false teaching, and he's writing to—my um, kids are laughing back there because I just snorted a little bit. Is that why you guys are laughing? <laughs> make, make fun of your dad on Father's Day. Go ahead. Not going to forget that <laughs> i did snort i was trying to push through it and not laugh but darn it my kids were giggling so there's this heresy uh, that's taking place in the in the church and so john writes to address that heresy and so what he's doing here in this text is he's offering some self-assessments to, 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 to where people can kind of read and and kind of gauge hey am, am i like am i am i flirting with heresy here Am, am I thinking of Christ in an orthodox way? Or am I, have, I, have, I, have my ears been tickled by these false teachers? And so he helps his audience to determine if they're walking in the light or if they're walking in the dark. He helps his audience uh, know if they are advancing truth or advancing lies. He, he helps his audience know whether or not they're dead in, in their sin or they're alive in forgiveness, whether they uh, have been declared righteous or they're still unrighteous. God is light, our text tells us. In him, there is no darkness at all, our text tells us. God is the absolute standard of perfection. The metaphor John uses is this image of light. And it is this perfect, this perfect standard that, that is the nature of God that is the standard by which our test is laid up, in, laid up against. By offering these various tests, our, our text unpacks what it looks like for, for us t- to be in the light. And so this is what we can determine today, us here in this place can determine today, uh, am I walking in the light or am I walking in darkness? We can determine, am I living in the truth or, or, or am I living in lies? A- am I walking in forgiveness or am I walking in sin? Have I been declared righteous or am I still unrighteous? Ultimately, uh, the text tells us that God is light, so you and I ought to walk in light and to walk in light, the text tells us, is to walk as Jesus walked. I'll say that again because it's kind of a mouthful. Ultimately, if I could summarize everything we just read, here's, here's, what, here's how I would summarize it. God is light, so we ought to walk in the light. And to walk in light is to walk as Jesus walked. If you look even our text we just read, if you look at the first verse that we read, 1-5, and the final verse that we read, 2-6, we call that like the bookends of our passage. Sometimes I call it the top and the tail, those two verses kind of give us an understanding or an insight into what John is doing with, with our text today. If you look at verse 5 in chapter 1, he writes, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Then in chapter 2, verse 5a and b, or verse 5b and, and verse 6, John concludes by saying, by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. And so we see that God is light. And if we, if we cheat a little bit, we see in verse 7 of chapter 1 that we're called to walk in the light. So God is light, we're called to walk in the light. And then John ends by saying, if you, if you claim you're in him, or if you believe you abide in him, you have to walk as Jesus walked. And so that's the movement of the passage. Walk in light, and to walk in light is to walk as Jesus walked. And so that's my my sermon in a bottle, to walk in God's light is to walk as Jesus walked. But ultimately, we're going to look in this text, I'm going to give you three three points, and I want to kind of give you a little bit of an insight into where we're going to go over the next few minutes. I want to look at John's assertion, I want to look at John's application, and I want to look at John's admonition. What is he asserting? He's very clearly asserting that God is light. That's the first thing we see. What's the application? Well, in the middle verses, kind of the bulk of our text today and the bulk of where we're going to spend time in this sermon is the application to walk in light. And then lastly, his admonition to his his audience before he finishes this section is to simply say, walk as Jesus walked. So we see John's assertion, we see his application, and we see his admonition. And the reality is we live in a dark world. And yet, we're called to walk in light. What does that look like? I'm reminded of when I was in second grade. I, I grew up in this teeny little town in Montana. And there was this, uh, uh, this Christmas pageant that we had every year. And our school was a K-12 school. So every year when we had our Christmas concert or our Christmas pageant, it was all grades. And in a little town of a couple hundred people, everybody showed up for the music concerts. And, and one year, for whatever reason, probably because the teacher felt sorry for me, I was given the place or the role of Santa Claus. So at the very end of the concert, all the classes, you know, at kindergarten through senior high, all saying, uh, here comes Santa Claus, you know, he's making his list, he's checking it twice, and I went to the rehearsal, and my job was to come out and check my list and kind of do this whole little thing, and it was easy when it was daytime, and the gym was lighted up, and, and I could see everything, but then at nighttime, when we had the concert, they had this spotlight on me, and when I walked out, poof, the spotlight was on me, and I could see nothing. All I could see was what the light was illuminating and I was blind and I got nervous and since I talk fast when I'm nervous and I do everything fast when I'm nervous, I took all the presents out of my bag and the song was like only a third done. So I put all the presents back in my bag, waited for a while and put them all back in the bag and ran off the stage. But this idea of being in a dark room with a spotlight on me that illuminated where I was, this is kind of the picture of what it looks like for a saint or a believer to be walking in the light in a fallen world. It's like we have the spotlight of God on us, and, and we are illuminating what's around us and also illuminating for other people. This is what it means for us to walk in the light. So again, look with me back at verse five of chapter one, and let's work through our points. I, I encourage you to underline the phrase, God is light. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Underlying God is light, we see John's assertion here. An assertion is a positive statement or a declaration. John is declaring that God is light. And he doesn't live in this metaphorical, um, non-concrete space. John makes it real practical as we move through our text. But his assertion here is that God is light. It's his declaration. It's a central metaphor that John uses throughout the first half and really through all of this letter. And in saying that God is light, John is making a statement about the nature of God. John is declaring that he heard this message from Jesus Christ himself. If you remember last week in our introduction, we talked about how tactile it was. And John was an eyewitness who knew Jesus. He was an apostle. He walked with Jesus. It was in dateable history. And as someone who walked with Jesus, John saw Christ. He, he touched Christ and he told us that he heard him. He listened to him. He doesn't tell us what he heard. But now in verse 5, we get a little insight. Here's one of the things that Jesus told John when he was on earth. He told John that God is light. This description of God as light, it captures the very essence of God. It's the essence of his his character, of his nature. It's foundational throughout the rest of this letter. It's not a new idea. If you look throughout all of scripture, often we see God uh, in his glory described in terms of light. It's a metaphor our minds can understand. If you look back in Exodus chapter 13, when the Israelites are leaving Egypt after the Exodus, uh, they are with God as they travel through the desert, and we read, beginning in verse 21, that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. God's presence manifested in the presence of the Israelites by night, by a fire at night to give them light. When Moses was on Mount Sinai to establish covenant with God, when he came off, his face shone, if you remember. He, he reflected the radiance of God to those around him. The psalmist in Psalm 104 declares, Blessed be the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great and you are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. The the concept of God as light is carried over into the New Testament. If you remember when Jesus was on Transfiguration Mountain, do you remember how it described that scene as he was transfigured in front of a couple of the apostles? It said that the face of Jesus shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. In John chapter 8, Jesus declared to an audience, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This imagery of Jesus as God's revelation of light it's laced throughout the New Testament. If you look at the four Gospels, these four portraits of Jesus, each one of them in a unique way talks about Christ in terms of light. If you look at Matthew's Gospel chapter 4 beginning in verse 14 as Jesus is beginning his ministry in Capernaum, the author of Matthew says he, he did this to fulfill the prophecy that we see in Isaiah chapter 9. This was written 700 years before Jesus, but when he began his ministry in northern Israel in the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee it was to fulfill this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, and then the author of Matthew quotes that prophecy. He says that Jesus, that in Jesus the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region, a shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. Luke's gospel talks about when Jesus was an infant and his parents took him to, to the temple to be dedicated which was the law for Jews. There was a faithful man uh, named Simeon who, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And when Simeon laid eyes upon Jesus, the Holy Spirit revealed to him that this was the Messiah, the promised one, the one who Simeon had been waiting for, the people of Israel had been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years. And there's this picture in, in Luke chapter two where Simeon lifts up Jesus in his arms and the Spirit gives him, gives him a song to sing about the truth of Jesus. Here's the song. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles for the glory of your people Israel. John, in his gospel, the same author as our epistle, all throughout the gospel is this language of Jesus' light, even the opening chapter. Chapter 1, we read that in him, in Jesus, was life. The life was the light of men, John says. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you go to verse 9 in chapter 1, John writes that Jesus is the true light, which gives light to everyone, and he was coming into the world. And later on in his gospel, as Jesus is speaking about himself, Jesus uses the term the light to refer to himself five times. In just a few verses, in John 3, verses 19 through 21, Jesus refers to himself as the light. And if you just even think about creation, and you think about the new heavens and the new earth, I mean, there was light at the beginning. Sun and moon weren't created till day four. So God himself was the light shining over creation at the very beginning of Scripture. If you look at how Scripture ends in the new heavens and the new earth, it says there's no need for sun or moon, that the Lamb himself will be the light. God is light. This is our hope. This is both a metaphorical thing, and it speaks to the character and the nature of God. Light speaks to to the perfection of God, the holiness of God, the life that only God can offer, the purity of God, the truth of God. God is light. Look with me, if you will, at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His Son cleanses us from all sin. Would you underline the phrase, walk in light? And here's the second thing I want you to see in our passage today. We see John's application. His very basic application that he unpacks for us is walk in the light. John calls us to walk in the light. Application just is, is something that we put to use, and this is what he's calling us to do. He's imploring his listeners to apply what he's saying. To walk in the light. He doesn't just arbitrarily tell us to do so. He's not just talking in religionist sort of language. He doesn't just use some religious lingo. He unpacks in very practical ways what walking in darkness looks like and also what walking in light looks like. This is is where he offers a multitude of ways that we can test ourselves. I talked about how this text offers us a test. And here in the next few verses. At the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, he begins to offer us these ways that you and I can assess today, right now, whether or not we're walking in the light or walking in the dark. If you look back, beginning at verse 6 of chapter 1, I want you to pay attention to the times where, 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 where... Well, John here is critiquing some of the empty religious dialogue of the heretics of the day. And I want you to pay attention to where John uses the phrase if we say, and and one time he says, whoever says, because when he's talking about the way people talk, he's using it as a critique for the empty, hollow, spiritual words people use that have no substance behind them. Look at verse 6. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Do you see how John is addressing the lofty, self-promoting, but empty spiritual claims of those of his day? And he speaks into our context today as well. He is warning his audience... Both them then and us today, he is saying to us, listen, here's what John wants you to hear today. Pay close attention to the claims you're making about your spiritual condition. He's saying pay very close attention to the claims you are making about your own spiritual condition. Words are one thing, but the truth about our condition is another. We can be like that woman who had a PhD who talked in very lofty ways because she was looking at the wrong measurements. Is there congruency in your life and in my life with who God is? and with who I am. Is there congruency with what I am saying? Am I saying untrue things about God unknowingly? Am I saying untrue things about my spiritual condition perhaps unknowingly? Does, does what you are saying live up to the truth of who God is and who you are? This is the question that John is asking us today. Ultimately, how does what you're saying match up with what God has already said? Consider with me, let's, let's rephrase these four questions for us today. I'm going to ask you these questions, and I'm asking, I've been asking myself these questions as I've studied this text as well. Consider with me again the things that we might find ourselves saying. Do you, now listen, this is for you. Do you, do you say to others that you have fellowship with God? Do you, do you say to others, or do you say to, to, to yourself that you have no sin, or that you have not sinned, or, or do you minimize your personal sin? Do you hide sin do you say that you know him do you say that you belong to jesus i know i say those things some of those things for sure if you said any of these things we need to pay attention to what john is saying because he's providing us an opportunity to really assess where we are spiritually why did he choose these these four particular questions to ask Uh, one theologian says, it's probable that these claims were real statements made by the people of the church in which John was writing and that they reflect the outlook of the people who were causing all the trouble that was prompting the letter writing. John's calling out self-promoting lofty spiritual claims that are false. You get a sense that he, that making these grand spiritual claims is something that John wants his audience to think about. He wants them to think about hollow, empty, spiritual, self-aggrandizing. He's saying, before you speak, pause, consider yourself before you utter these words. But there are two instances in our passage, if you notice, where speaking isn't a negative thing. He tends to make it clear that these four instances I just highlighted are negative, but there's two times when speaking is actually uh, something that seems to be appreciated in our passage. One's in verse 5, where John talks about how he was proclaiming that which he heard from Jesus. So to proclaim the words of Jesus is a good thing to say. That's a good time to open your mouth. The other time that he says it's good to open your mouth is in verse 9 of chapter 1 when he says, confess your sins. So the two times we're speaking is upheld in the life of the believer is to uphold the perfection of Christ and proclaim his words and is to recognize your own imperfection and confess your sins. I, I, I think about just the, the trajectory of the spiritual life that we are on. For anyone who's been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you, you might know some of these stages of f- faith that we go through. There's this time in my life, at least when I first became a Christian, and I was so excited about the things I was learning, and I was just gobbling up literature and, and sitting under sound teaching, and I had all the answers. I had every spiritual answer at like 25, and I just thought I knew everything. And, and it was, and then I would be around these older saints, and they would be humble, and it just felt like they were dumb, and it's like, well, no, there's answers to that. You know? and, and it just was kind, of, it was kind of bothersome to me. And then I started getting a little older. And the older I got, the more I realized I didn't know. And the more I realized that maybe I was simplifying things or I wasn't thinking of God right. And, and God sort of started to rebuke me of those things. And I've learned now today, I'm still a young man, relatively speaking, middle-aged. I love being around saints that are senior saints. I love being around men and women that have walked with Jesus for decades and decades and decades that are continuing to grow in Christ. It's one of the most awesome things to see to see the humility that comes with years of walking with the Lord. If you were to listen to the things I said when I was younger, and I'm sure if still to this day, it was a lot of self-promotion. When I sit around senior saints and have walked with Jesus for many years, I don't hear a lot of self-promotion. I hear a lot of humility and a lot of propping up of Jesus, and we need more of that in the church. Let's go back to John's test. Do you say that you have fellowship with God? Have you said that? Listen again to his words in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, John is saying, if you claim to have fellowship with God, but your life is no different from the life of those who deny God, you're a liar. If you claim to have fellowship with the God of light, but your life does not reflect that light, John says you do not practice the truth. Have you ever found yourself saying, I I, I have no sin? or have you hidden your sin and deceived yourself listen again to verse 8 if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us in other words if you claim to not have sin or if you hide your sin so others can't see it you're self-deceived you're blind to the reality of your fallen self you have blinders on that to the reality of your condition and john says there's no truth in you do you say that you have not sinned or or maybe you have minimized your sin Listen to the words of verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him, God, a liar. And His word is not in us. In other words, if you claim that you've not sinned, you're undermining the very word of God. And John John says, if you do that, you make God Himself a liar. If you claim to be free of sin, you are concocting a false reality that does not reflect God's word. And John says, if you do that, you do not know or have God's word in you. Perhaps... I think anyone here who claims to be a Christian has said this. Perhaps you've said you know God, or you belong to Him, which is a fine thing to say. But be cautious when we say that. Use this as an opportunity to assess what's going on in our inner world. Here's what John says, beginning in chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, that person is a liar, and the truth is not in him. In other words, if you claim to have a relationship with God, But if your life is lived in opposition to his commandments, just flatly, John says you're a liar. If you claim to be a child of God, but you have a disregard for the ways of God in your daily life, John says you have no truth in you. Harsh. These are very practical, very applicable tests we can apply right here, right now. We ought to pause in this moment and reflect and consider. We ought to look at God's word. We ought to look at God's ways and look at our lives to see where we lie. This is an opportunity for us to assess. It's an opportunity for us to ask, what are the fruits in my life? Is there fruits in my life that reflect the faith, the faith I claim? You know, Jesus warned about false prophets and their negative fruits in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in chapter 7 of Matthew, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. And then he kind of makes this general statement. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree boasts, bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. And so here, once again, I want to, not trying to belabor this point. But I want you to hear the test that John gives us to apply to our lives today. Listen to this. If you claim to have fellowship with God and yet you're walking in darkness, you're a liar and you don't practice the truth. If you claim to not sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. These are John's words, not mine. If you claim you've never sinned, you make God a liar and his word is not in you. If you claim to know God, but you don't keep his commandments, again, John says you're a liar and the truth is not in you. But notice this is not the only thing that is in our text today. Notice that between these questions that, J- that John is asking, there is, uh, there's other things that are laced throughout our passage. Play close attention to what we're going to read here in a moment, which is the work of God in Christ on our behalf. We aren't called to conjure up a righteousness on our own apart from the work of God in our lives. John details the amazing work that God does on our behalf. Look again with me, if you would, beginning in verse 7. Through verse 5 of chapter 2, listen for the ways that John in our text points us to Jesus. Take note of the instances where John highlights the actions of God on our behalf. Look for the names in God or the pronouns of God Jesus, his son. We read the Father. We read Jesus Christ. Twice we read the pronoun of God, he. Look at verse 7 in chapter 1. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What a beautiful promise. If we walk in the light, what enables us to walk in the light is this cleansing power of the blood of Jesus, which takes away our sins. Verse. 9 of chapter 1, he says, If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you and I, as we become aware of the sin in our life, as God brings conviction of the things we're doing that are opposite of what He would desire for us, and we begin to confess that to God in faith, He tells us that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and He cleanses us from every wrong. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. To anyone who does sin, praise God, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, So we're going to sin. We live in a fallen world where sin exists. And even when we do sin, we have Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is our advocate. We don't do this alone. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So this is our great hope. Jesus has been our righteousness. He was our propitiation. He he was the atoning sacrifice of God, the substitute who died in our place, who, who, who took on the wrath. Our sin deserves that we might have forgiveness and life. So what has Jesus Christ done for us? Well, he's made a way for you and me to walk in the light. That's what he's done. By cleansing us from all sin through Jesus. So what else has Jesus done for us? He's provided a way for us to be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Though we confess of sin, through which we confess our sins, and by which God forgives us and cleans us. So what has Christ done for us? He advocates for those who continue to struggle with sin by pleading on our behalf to the Father. That's what it means that he's our advocate. So what else has Jesus done for us? He's been our substitute. He's a propitiation for our sins. And though he, Jesus, didn't know sin, he was sinless. Jesus became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. It's only through Jesus Christ that we have the hope of walking in light. See, to walk in God's light is to walk as Jesus walked. And we can only walk as Jesus walked because he first became our substitute and earned a righteousness for us that we can't earn on our own. He gave us his righteousness. And now those of us that are in Christ, that have been born again, he advocates for us, he forgives us, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So the assertion that John makes is that God is light. The application that he gives us is to walk in the light. Then he gives us all these tests that we can discern where we are. We can assess where we are. And then finally, if we look at verse 5 and 6 of chapter 2, here's how we wrap up. By this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Underline that last phrase. Ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We see John's admonition. He tells us to walk as Jesus walked. God is light. Walk in the light, walk as Jesus walked. It's a rather simple test. When we start thinking about, am I walking as Jesus walked? Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way Jesus walks. The test is rather simple. There's two parts to it. This final test that John gives us. One is the mirror test. So when you look in the mirror, or when you replay the tape of the life that you've been living, do you see Christ's likeness? And the other test is about what others see. When the world around you looks at you, do they see Christ's likeness? Do you walk as Jesus walked? This is the Jesus test. I'm really excited because next fall, beginning on September 12th, we're going to teach through uh, the gospel of Mark. And as we teach the gospel of Mark, and as we think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, we're going to gaze on one of the portraits, and we can see how Jesus walked. As we seek to walk as Jesus walked, as we seek to call our church to be disciples of Jesus, I'm super excited about it. So that's my question. When you look in the mirror, do you see a reflection of Christ's likeness looking back at you? When the world around you looks upon your life, do they see Christ's likeness? And that's a hard one for me to consider. If you were to sit down with those who witness your life day in and day out, and you were to ask them to tell you what they see day in and day out, what report would you get? If you ask your parents, your coaches, your classmates, your teammates, your siblings, would they say they see Jesus in you? If you ask your coworkers or your spouse or your children or your neighbors or even the strangers you meet along the way, would they say that they see Jesus when they look at you? Would they say you're walking as Jesus walked? Would they see a a living parable of Christ? Would they see someone who's walking as Jesus walked? And how do we do that? Well, John uses this picture of abiding. He says, by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked. These these terms, to be in him and abide in him, are synonymous. But this phrase of abide, it's all throughout John's literature. It's, it's, and he uses this, this agricultural metaphor to understand and highlight and illustrate for us what is abiding. He says that Jesus is the is the vine, and we are the branches. And and if we stay connected to the vine, then we will produce much fruit. But apart from the vine, we can do nothing. John unpacks this in detail in his gospel in chapter fifteen. Is is we hear the very words of Jesus who taught about abiding. Jesus says in John's gospel chapter 15 verses 4, 5, and 6, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus said I am the vine you are the branches whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered thrown into the fire and burned. That that phrase, abide, the Greek word, it it just simply means to to, to dwell in, to endure, to remain, to stay connected to. When Jesus tells us to abide in him, he's telling us to stay connected to him, to stay close to him, to to continue in daily personal relationship with him, a relationship that's characterized by by trust and and prayer and obedience and joy, to stay connected to Jesus, to abide in him, because we can do nothing apart from him. Those who abide will see the fruit of the Spirit being produced in their lives. We can't manufacture the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of Paul or the fruit of Elijah or the fruit of Fred. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And how we experience that isn't by our own effort. It's by remaining. It's by abiding. It's by staying connected to God. This is the picture of what it means to walk as Jesus walked. What are the fruits of the Spirit? It's a well-known verse. Paul in Galatians Chapter 5, he says the fruits of the Spirit are love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These are the fruits that God produces in us as we walk with Him, as we stay connected to Him, as we abide in Him. Just think of the basics of any intimate relationship. We're called to this in Jesus. Time, communication, service. The pursuit of intimacy, this is what we're called to as men and women who are to walk with Jesus, to abide in Christ is to foster an intimate connection with Him, an intimate relationship, and ultimately, it's to be a disciple. One church defines disciple, the process of discipleship in a pretty simple way. They say, to be a disciple, it begins when, when we be with Jesus. And after we spend time being with Jesus, we, we then become like Jesus, and then after we become like Jesus, we learn to do what Jesus did. I sort of like that simplistic outline of what it means to be a disciple. Here at Heritage, we have defined what a disciple is. We put language to it, verbiage to it. We've toiled over this verbiage. I shared it with you a couple of weeks ago. Here's what we believe a disciple is at Heritage Christian Fellowship. A disciple is someone who has faith in Jesus, who is growing in the likeness of Jesus, and who is leading others to follow Jesus. We think to be a disciple encompasses all three of those aspects. What is it to have faith in Jesus? It's to trust That only through Christ, he is the way, the truth, and the life. We cannot come to the Father except through him. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He is our advocate. We have trusted in Christ and Christ alone, and in so doing, we've been born again and adopted into the family of God. We also believe the disciple is someone who is growing in the likeness of Jesus. This is the fruit of abiding. As we remain connected to God, as we remain connected to Jesus, as we pursue intimacy with him, as we spend time with him, as we pursue him in his word, by the power of God's spirit, he mores us and grows us more and more into the likeness of Jesus throughout the days of our life. That's why I love sitting down with a senior saint who's walked with Jesus for 40 years, 50 years, because they have learned so much in that intimate pursuit. It's an amazing thing to witness someone who truly and authentically lives a life of love, the fruit of the spirit. And what is it to lead others to follow Jesus? It's to put our hand to the work of making disciples who make disciples. It's reaching those who don't know Jesus with the hope of the gospel. So we are called to walk in God's light and to walk in God's light is to walk as Jesus walked. God is light. Walk in the light. Walk as Jesus walked. So before I close, I want to give us one more time, one more opportunity for us to pause and reflect on your life in Jesus. I've been doing this as I've studied this text. I want you and me in this moment for a few minutes before we wrap in prayer to pause and to reflect on your personal walk with Jesus right now. To walk in God's light is to walk as Jesus walks. So when you consider your walk with God, do you deny or minimize or hide your sin? Or do you confess your sin to God and others? When it comes to your walk with God, do you do, you, do you do spiritual works as a way to earn God's favor? Or are your works a free will offering to a God has, who has already freely loved you? An act of gratitude, an act of worship. When you consider your walk with God, do you use your words to exalt yourself? Or do you use your words to exalt Jesus? This is the test that John has given us. You see, the person who is walking in the light, the person who is walking as Jesus walked has trusted Jesus. He is the propitiation for their sins. He is their advocate to the Father. They have been born again. They have gone from death to life. They've been adopted into the family of God. They're saved. The person who is walking in the light, the person who walks as Jesus walked, understands that they are to confess Their sins, and in the confession of their sins, they are forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. The person who was walking in the light, the person who walks as Jesus walked, is using their words not to proclaim their own worth, but they're using their words to proclaim the matchless worth of Jesus Christ. They've been cleansed from all unrighteousness, they've been saved by God from his wrath, they are declared righteous because of what Jesus has done, they're objects of God's grace. as a gift of God, they didn't earn their salvation, they didn't purchase their righteousness, but now as an act of worship, they walk in the light because the God of light saved them from darkness. Did you hear that? To walk as Jesus walked is you and I understanding as an act of worship, we walk in the light because God, because the God of light saved us from darkness. This is what it means to walk in the light as Jesus walked. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful for this text. God, I'm thankful that you have made yourself known to us and you have made a way for us, not a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that you give to us when we trust in you. God, I'm so thankful that that you sent your son who who lived a sinless life. Uh, So thankful for your son who who went to the cross as a substitute for me and those who have come to trust you. I'm so thankful that the wrath that we deserve because of our sinfulness was poured out upon Jesus who did not deserve the wrath, but he took it upon as an act of love. I'm so thankful that the justice of God has been satisfied in Jesus. I'm so thankful that the the debt against me has been canceled and we can look to you, Jesus, and we can confess you and we can be saved and, and we can enter into the family of God. Our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. We get to be born into your family. It's amazing. And so God, as men and women who who have been saved, men and women who have gone from death to life, who belong to your family, God, I just pray that you would help us understand what it means for us to walk in the light. God, help us understand by the power of your Spirit what it means that we are to walk as Jesus walked. God, I just pray for our church. God, I pray for the men and women who who worship in this building and and other local churches in this valley and beyond. But God, I pray that that we would be a a people, God, who would so deeply love you and so desire to worship you that that we would stop at nothing to walk as Jesus walked. God, to have a deep and abiding faith in you. God, to be shaped and formed and transformed more and more into the image of your son Jesus and, and to lead others. God, into this amazing truth, this amazing love that they would learn to follow you as well, Lord. God, we love you. We thank you that you love us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.